Year Universe. I'm Julia Rogers. And I'm Margot Brookfield. Welcome to Gap Year Radio, the show that brings you information and inspiration to plan a life-changing Gap Year adventure. Today, you're going to hear from Andrew Buchanan, a student who was a Moorhead Kane scholarship recipient through UNC Chapel Hill. And he did a bunch of really interesting things during his gap year and went to some places that are certainly off the beaten track. Margot, tell us a little bit about your conversation with Andrew. Yes. So I had the pleasure of chatting with Andrew a few weeks ago now here, and I honestly came away from the interview personally inspired and wanting to jet off on some adventure like what he was able to experience during his gap time. So he is a recipient of the Moorhead Kane Scholarship, which from my understanding, it is a program that provides a fully funded four-year undergraduate degree at UNC Chapel Hill. But as part of that, they also offer funding for a gap year up to $7,500 for any gap year that has a significant international component. So Andrew, tells us a little bit more about his various components to his gap year, which did start off with a Knowles program and continued on to some independent surfing trips with his dad and his brother, and then on to more independent travels throughout Central Asia and to a number of places that are, I would say, seldom visited by international travelers, but paints a really beautiful picture of the adventures that he had and and how impactful that was. So he tells us a little bit more about the scholarship as a whole and its place within UNC Chapel Hill and then goes through his really inspirational year of gap time that he took. I know that I can't wait to hear about it. And I've also seen a lot of pictures on their Instagram page, which is really worth following. It's called the Buchanan at the Buchanan Project. So you can check that out for visuals of what Andrew's about to talk about. Absolutely. Well, thank you all for being here. And without further ado, let's get started. Welcome to the pod today, Andrew. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I'm, I'm like, it's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. So as uh, we will have chatted about in the intro, Andrew is a Moorhead Kane scholarship recipient. So from my understanding, Moorhead Kane is a program that provides a fully funded four-year undergraduate degree at UNC Chapel Hill, but they also have this gap year program where they provide up to $7,500 in funding for any gap year with a significant international component. So Andrew, I would love to hear from you a little bit more about how you ended up being a Moorhead Kane scholar, like what led you to UNC and then what particularly drove you towards their gap year program option? Yeah, so it was kind of a weird series of events that led me to uh, receive the Moorhead Kane. Um, I'm actually the first recipient from my school. I went to a small private school in Los Angeles um, and not very many people on the West Coast have ever even heard about uh, the Moorhead Kane scholarship and like a number haven't even heard about UNC Chapel Hill. Um, But I was just nominated by one of my college counselors and she knew that I'm kind of a curious uh, personality, uh, likes to take the road less traveled, and that's a lot about what Moorhead Kane supports. Um, and they uh, nominated me, and I threw my hat in the ring, and through a series of uh, interviews and applications, and then eventually finalist week at UNC, um, I was offered the scholarship. Um, and when I came to visit UNC and uh, do my interviews here for the Moorhead Kane scholarship, I actually it was, I spent a full week along with all the other finalists. Um, and I realized that the group of people that the scholarship attracts is extremely special. Um, and the university itself is just phenomenal. There's a lot of school spirit. There's incredible um, like research opportunities, uh, tangible and intangible opportunities. And I knew this was a place for me. Um, it's like an antidote to the little bubble I grew up in in Los Angeles. So it's, it's completely perfect. Um, and I haven't met anybody else from Los Angeles here. So it's kind of fun being different. Um, 
And then what actually drew me to their gap year uh, program, well, my senior year of high school, I knew I wanted to take a gap year when my brother, who is also uh, four years older than I am, um, decided to take a gap year before applying to medical school. Um, so we would take a gap year together. Um, and I, I knew just like by senior year, I was ready to spread my wings and explore and do something outside of the classroom. And then, so I, I'd, once I received the scholarship and I was enrolled at UNC, I actually like requested to take a gap year and they got back to me with some exciting news that um, they're introducing a gap year grant. Um, and I'd be the first recipient of it if I like applied um, and fulfilled the criteria. Um, so with all of those, like the stars kind of aligned for me. I was really, really fortunate to have all these opportunities. And yeah, that's how I ended up taking a year off uh, through Moorhead Kane. Wow. So you had no idea prior that they even had a gap year, that they you know, supported a gap year option? No, I had no idea that they funded a gap year. I did know that there are scholars in the past who've taken gap years, Okay. but uh, they weren't uh, funded. Wow. How special. I mean, yeah, absolutely. Stars aligning in your favor in that case. That's wonderful. And so I just back to the scholarship and then, then we'll get to the gap year. I am just curious when you say it attracts a certain type of student, you know, I guess what are the qualifications that Moorhead Kane is looking for or the type of student that they are attracting through this that, that is so special? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of, it's a it's the nation's first merit scholarship, um, and it's modeled after the Rhodes Scholarship, and it's a pretty big deal in North Carolina, so half of the recipients are from the state of North Carolina and the other half are outside, and what they look for in their uh, scholars is like obvious a capability inside the classroom like you have to be able to get the right grades and you have to be curious and competent like intellectually but then you also have to be willing to take chances and pursue things on your own um, so a lot of the like my fellow scholars have done pretty incredible things started businesses um, like uh, had pretty incredible trips that they've taken on their own um, started clubs in high school a lot of their, their leaders throughout campus, like our current student body president is Moorhead Kane. Um, so it's just a group that's really driven. Um, but the, w the interesting thing about this group that, I, that really drew me to it um, is that they're incredibly modest. So going around campus, like you won't know who um, is the actual, who is a scholar, because uh, nobody really talks about it. Everybody keeps it under the radar. They always want to know more about you. Um, and they don't really talk about themselves unless prompted. Um, so it's a really modest group as well. It's not um, like a huge uh, ego, <laughs> like an egocentric group. Wow. And so out of curiosity, how many Moorhead Kane scholars are there on any given year? I know UNC is a pretty big institution. Yeah, around 70. Uh, I know the number's growing um, because there have been a lot of large donations lately. Um, to the fund, but at around 70. Wow, that is a pretty significant student population that is receiving that, that's amazing. Well, so I am also, I only know bits and pieces about your GAP story from what I've seen on your website and blog, The Buchanan Project. But yeah, I would love to hear a little bit more about the many adventures that you guys embarked upon. Maybe, you know, in short, where did you travel or how did you go about planning that? Yeah, absolutely. So whenever I'm asked this question, I've had a lot of uh, time to refine my answers. Um, and the go-to is really selling it short by saying like, I just bummed around and I just bummed around the ocean or I just bummed around the mountains. But, but from afar, you could say I did that. I spent a lot of my time either at the beach, surfing um, on various continents uh, and camping or in the mountains. So collectively, I think I spent five months living outside in my year off. And so that's just like the big picture of uh, my gap year. The background is really driven. I wanted to do it on a budget. I wanted to do it on my own, um, but I also wanted to uh, structure the year such that 
there were components with my brother and dad, um, and then there were pieces that I'd be completely solo for. Um, so with those criteria in mind, um, I was kind of weird how everything unfolded. I, I, one, one thing I learned um, in the year off is that you can't really plan it out fully. Um, so I had like these big blocks of time uh, allotted to trips. So um, I guess chronologically, the first block would be going to Mexico with my dad and brother on a road trip um, down the Baja Peninsula and then sailing back up via the Sea of Cortez um, and my dad's friend's boat, which was really, really fun. And that was like our first step into the year off, uh, you know, camping, having some adventure with the family. But my dad, who like was extremely familiar um, with Mexico and could really kind of guide us around, make sure we stayed out of trouble. Um, he like showed us the ropes of international travel. And then progressively from, from that trip on to our last one, um, they got longer and longer and more independent. Um, and they're punctuated with uh, visits with my brother. Um, and then other trips were entirely alone. So I guess I could dive into any of those trips if you're curious, but I, that's kind of the the meta of the gap year, like the big picture. Awesome. And so with that, I mean, obviously I know the funding that you received from Moorhead Kane and, you know, trying to do it on a budget definitely would lend more to the independent side. But what made you decide that you wanted to do something independent versus participating in a program or something like that? Um, I've always just wanted to be on my own um, and have that freedom. I mean, even when I was little, my mom would like take me cross country skiing. Um, she'd have me in like this little sled she'd drag behind her and I would just throw hissy fits because I wanted to ski on my own and not be pulled around. So I guess it's just <laughs> in my character to want to be independent. Oh, um, awesome. So I was really excited and I've, you know, read a lot of books about people's travels and I've heard the stories from my dad and my brother who've done stuff on their own. And in high school, I was actually I was lucky enough to go on model United Nations trips uh, where I had a little bit a taste of international travel. Um, and that definitely inspired me and, you know, kind of helped negate some of the fear I had of the outside world, you know, places beyond the United States. So with all that, um, it was like the perfect recipe for wanting to go alone. Awesome. Yeah. Well, I guess maybe, you know, if we want to break this up, maybe would you tell us about the sections that you did spend with your brother to start? And then we can talk about the sections that you did independently. I would love to hear what you and your brother did and how you went about choosing what you were going to do during your combined time. Yeah. So the portion that my brother and I spent together um, began in Mexico. We actually trained to do a half Ironman together um, in Mexico and then did the road trip with my dad. So we spent. I was yeah. going to ask about the Iron Man. <laughs> I saw that somewhere on the on the blog or social media. That's amazing. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so I'd done triathlon for a while, and my brother, uh, he was just completely Aquaman. He'd never really run or biked, so it was pretty funny seeing him in running <laughs> shoes and like spandex biking shorts. But hey, he trained and he did it, and that was a great feat for him to accomplish and for us to do together. And, and I actually disqualified in the race because my bike broke, so he beat me. Um, oh no. <laughs> I know, but that was fun. Uh, so we started that off uh, together, um, and I was a little bit, like, my brother and I get along quite well, um, but I didn't know the extent to which we'd want to spend time together this year. So we started off with baby steps, like, oh, we'll take a trip and dad will be there, so he'll, like, buffer for us if anything, like, happens. Like, there's three of us. And then um, our graduation present, this was independent of the Mord Kane Funny. My parents are actually really kind, and when we graduated, um, they said, we've been dreaming of doing, like, a, a big surf adventure together. Um, so they gave us a budget, uh, it's kind of tight, but enough to get to uh, the West Indies. Um, and we had read about, my brother had read about this secret surf spot on, like, one of the more outer-lying islands that had about 1,500 people on it before a hurricane hit, and now there's, like, very few people living on the island. 
but there's incredible surf if the stars align and you get the swell in the right direction. So we'd wanted to do this trip for a while. This is our trip to the West Indies. Um, so we had been tossing that around with a potential window of when the swells would be good to go on this trip. Um, and then it so happened that the swell came and then we went in uh, early December together and that was about a two week trip. So that was uh, immediately after Mexico pretty much. We went to the West Indies and that was our first time being alone um, away from our parents just on our own traveling. So that was like another, that was like another small step towards complete independence uh, because obviously there's two of us. Um, but we were still like living in like a like a guest house and then camping. But like, it was a bit of hand holding in comparison to the trips at the end of the year. Um, but yeah, we ended up on this tiny island, um, and what we thought was going to be the adventure, um, we thought all the adventure was going to be around the ocean and surfing and having great waves and like tropical you know, water and green trees and coconuts. And actually, <laughs> the climate was so brutal. It was harder than anything I did the rest of the year with just living on that island. Yeah, it was, uh, oh man, this island was tiny. It was full of donkeys. Um, and there's just sand flies and mosquitoes everywhere. Like the second we hopped off the boat, um, which was like a local ferry for workers, <laughs> we hopped off and got dropped off on this point that was supposed to have waves. There weren't waves. It was really hot and there's bugs everywhere and we couldn't like, we could not, the only relief from like the stinging of sand flies and mosquitoes was being in the water. So over the course of a few days, we, uh, we spent like probably five hours, a, no, probably like eight hours a day <laughs> in the ocean and then the rest of the day hiding under like a makeshift shelter. It looked like something on that Tom Hanks movie. Um, blank Castaway? Movie. Yeah, Castaway. We honestly <laughs> got started looking pretty feral um, by oh the end. Oh my gosh. I know, and we were waiting for our dream swell to show. It didn't, <laughs> but we ended up kite surfing a lot, and it was quality kite surfing. And, you know, we'd cook, we'd dig like a pit in the sand and uh, cook like pasta and basically char our pasta on some fire in the sand, like with driftwood. <laughs> and no one was there. We didn't see any tourists. Um, and the locals really took us under their wing, too. They helped us out with getting food and water and, and giving us advice. And So the adventure, what we thought was going to be a surf trip, ended up being far from it. Um, no surfing in the, on that island. And just surviving the elements, um, getting beautiful photos, and meeting a lot of really kind locals. Um, so that was our first. That really lit a fire for us. We were like, wow, this is so cool. Wow, and nothing yeah. that you expected, it sounds like, but a really unique adventure nonetheless. Yeah, absolutely. I'd really encourage you to go look at the photos, too, because they're really deceptive. Uh, we kept throwing around the idea of it being like heaven and hell. Um, it was the most beautiful white sand beach, all the shades of turquoise ocean, like nothing sharp that would cut you. And it and it was stunning. And <laughs> except for then there's hell, which is like there's no water. So we ended up drinking a lot of coconuts and then like water. We had to walk into town at Dubai and then mosquitoes everywhere, and oh my by the end, like, just the dehydration from the salt, it was, like, impossible to stay hydrated. Oh my gosh, so, but you're not going to see in the photos. <laughs> no, you're not going to see in the photos. That was really challenging. Wow, oh my gosh, that's incredible, and yeah, so then where did you go from there? Where where was the next stop on your adventures? Um, we did a little island hop on the way home to stay in Puerto Rico to actually surf. So that was our, um, <laughs> we needed a little, like a break from our trip, ironically. Yeah. So that was the next stop. Um, and that was just, you know, type one fun, purely just enjoyable, staying in an Airbnb surfing. That was um, <laughs> amazing. Yeah. And then I got home um, and then we had Christmas as a family. 
Um, and then, you know, told about our stories, like all my friends who, had, who were in college came back, they're all pasty and freshman 15. And here I was like tan and lean from the Iron Man, like <laughs> sun bleached hair, like everyone was all jealous. That was, that was a highlight. Living your best life. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Um, and then, <laughs> it's funny because little did I know my next trip would make me like gain 15 pounds and get all pasty. Oh, no. um, and that, that was a nose course I did in Patagonia. And that nose course was actually through the Moorhead Cane. So all, all scholars do a uh, nose or outward bound course their freshman year. Wow. Uh, or before going into their freshman year. Oh, that's um, amazing. But since I took a gap year, I could pick whichever one I wanted. Uh, so I picked one in Patagonia. And that was, um, I could talk about that if you want, because that, that wasn't very much independent travel, but that was also a really formative experience mountaineering. Um, yeah, absolutely. Patagonia is by far one of my favorite places I've personally ever been to. And I would definitely be interested in hearing more about what you did on that course. Oh yeah, totally. Yeah, Patagonia is stunning. I feel like it's enchanting uh, for <laughs> anyone who goes there. <laughs> it, it steals a piece of your heart. That's for sure. Oh uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I'm actually looking in my dorm at the big photos of Patagonia that I have on my wall. <laughs> yep. Um, my living room is littered with them. <laughs> yeah, it's hard not to. It's so, so photogenic. But um, so I did a Knowles course, um, a six week mountaineering course. Um, so what that really means is that it's a it's a leadership course in a mountaineering context. Um, and I was actually the youngest of all of the students. Well, actually, no, there was two other uh, there's a twin sisters on a gap year. And besides us three, the average I think the average age is like 30. Um, so there's people from all walks of life on that trip, pretty much. I mean, I guess the oldest was like 50. So that's not. Not all walks of life, but like a different chapter. Um, and we had to live together um, and we learned like the hard mountaineering skills, like tying knots, being on rope, um, you know, using protection in the mountains where like, you know, if you're not exposed to rain, like how to protect yourself from falls or um, evaluating hazards and then how to lead. Um, and then also I had done a lot of in, the, in the outdoors and I'd climbed. So I was, I was familiar with a number of these things, but I'd never been on a glacier before. So that was mm -hmm. extremely exciting to wear crampons and like yeah. melt your uh, melt your water and live in a perimeter that you couldn't leave for fear of crevasses. Um, wow! Yeah. Yeah, and it was absolutely stunning. Everywhere that you'd look is like the next most beautiful place. And <laughs> I expected this trip to be uh, really challenging physically um, and like mentally, um, but in in all honesty, it was mostly just challenging mentally because group dynamics are always difficult and we had some few interesting we had a few interesting characters in our group that made group living um always something <laughs> to work for um, like group harmony we always had to work towards that and then the other thing was we patagonia i mean you know you've been there the weather can be terrible oh my so we, gosh yeah yeah so we ended up spending like a week straight just hunkering um from bad weather and I mean, I'd been bouncing around the oceans, wearing a bathing suit and doing triathlon. So I wasn't used to sitting still. So that was really In challenging the cold and mentally. wind. Oh, yeah. Patagonia. <laughs> exactly. So that's where I started gaining weight and getting pasty. <laughs> Hilarious. I what know. region of Patagonia were you in for this course? We were in Chile and Patagonia um, on the border with Argentina in an area called Cerro San Lorenzo. So it's like a watershed, a huge iconic mountain. Uh, it's a watershed line between Argentina and Chile. Yeah, and it's glaciated, and we traveled on rope over, like, snow-covered glacier, so you had to, you know, watch out for crevasses and actually fell into two and had to get hoisted out. Oh, my gosh. Um, yeah, it was, it was legit. It was really fun. Um, but 
after that trip, like I had no question, like I know how to take care of myself in the outdoors. Um, I might not know all the hard skills of like rock climbing and like, I still need to develop like, cause mountaineering is a lifelong career, um, to do it safely. So I know like I'm way more humbled. Like I can't really do all the stuff that you see on TV (laughs) from like the Everest films, but I'm equipped for at least camping. (laughs) Awesome. It sounds like winter camping or, you know, tough weather camping, which is a whole different kind of, as you said, mental game to, to handle. So absolutely. Very cool. So then, yeah, where, where did, where did your adventures take you after that? Yeah. After Patagonia, I had this, the, the trip that was officially funded by Moorhead Kane is the grand, the grand uh, finale to the year. It was like a three and a half month trip uh, through Asia, Central Asia, Australia. Um, and that was right around the corner. So I'd finish up Patagonia and the plan was to go home for like a week and then go straight to Nepal. Um, but in Patagonia, I actually became really good friends with this, um, this, this guy named Misha and he's a He's in his 40s and he's retired from Google and he's super cool. Like he does a lot of rock climbing. He did Ironmans and we became like really good friends. And it's kind of unlikely friendship that happened just because of like our difference in age. But we got along so well that um, he decided to come to Nepal with me. Uh, So on a whim, like he gets home, he has like five days to prepare. And then I had five days to say hi to my family. Um... And then say goodbye to them again. And my mom, I still remember every time, I think the most heart-wrenching part of the year was saying goodbye to my mom and she dropped me off at the airport. Like, she'd be all sad and crying yeah. and like, oh, I don't know when I'm going to see you. And I have, oh. I know. <laughs> That's very sweet. Yeah, so I had to do that again. <laughs> it's challenging. Yeah. But um, but she, she, t- she looked me in the eye uh, before she sent me off to this giant trip that I would have. Um, this one primarily solo, um, and said like, Andrew, like you're going to remember this for the rest of your life. You're about to go on something so special. Like, I don't even know how words can explain to you what you're about to do. So she knew. Um, so that got me really excited. Um, flew to Nepal, met Misha, and we ended up doing the Annapurna circuit, uh, which is a big trek through the Annapurna mountain range. Um, and we actually didn't complete the circuit cause we had record snow that year. Um, and there are people killed in avalanches the same day we were on the same trail. Um, and we just came out of Patagonia, so we are pretty familiar with uh, evaluating hazards and being smart on the trail and capable. And, you know, we were in the groove, and we'd just been living together for so long. We could coexist really well. We made a really good team, but we made the decision to not go for the 18,000-foot pass because no one had done it yet. We didn't have, glacier, we didn't have like, uh, like harnesses, ropes, crampons, ice axes. Yeah. I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't even in waterproof shoes, so it was, it was, that was an adventure in itself, but yeah, we turned around and we bonded and spent a lot of time in hot springs that we found and still hiked like 18 miles a day at pretty high altitude and stunning, stunning terrain. So that was really fun. Yeah. We didn't camp though. We were trekking. So we'd stay in guest houses. The tea houses along the way. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, and then, so I guess I should back up and say before I went on this trip, I had gotten the trip approved by Moorhead Kane. So I had an idea of what my itinerary would be. Um, gotcha. So going in, so when I was in Nepal, it wasn't like, oh, what am I going to do next? Like I had a ticket, a flight to um, China next, and then a flight from China to Australia. Um, so those are the flights that I'd had booked so far. And then the plan was to go Nepal, China, Australia, Hong Kong, uh, Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, and Kazakhstan. That was a plan that was approved, stamped by Morad Kane, got the check for that, but that isn't actually what happened. So when I was in Nepal, like, that's what I thought I was going to do. Um, 
But then we finished the track in about two weeks, or we finished our track in two weeks, said goodbye to Misha, and then I was like fully on my own. And I had this like moment of panic in the hostel <laughs> when I was officially all, all by myself, just surrounded by the chaos of Kathmandu, noise, um, just like madness. I remember walking to try to get food and like wearing my flip-flops and like just stepping over shards of glass, like buses whizzing by me. Like I could have high-fived them, they were that close. And I was like, I'm going to get myself killed. Like, what am I doing? <laughs> um, but so that, that there were some stressful hours when I was first on my own. And then I realized how exciting it was um, and got on a plane and landed in Kunming, China. Um, and I actually took, I studied Chinese for six years in high school. So I'm pretty conversational, but for some reason when I landed, like I had forgotten all my Chinese. Um, and I, <laughs> that tends to happen. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Didn't have a SIM card. Um, didn't have Google Maps working, which is where I had the address the hotel saved, or my hostel saved. So I was just kind of like bouncing around like the buses asking people like if they knew where this hostel was. And by luck, I found somebody who's also going to the hostel. And it's literally just like a tiny apartment with like three guest beds. So with the odds of that were slim. But I ended up getting to the hostel and getting my feet on the ground in China and um, getting some of my language skills back. Um, and I didn't actually have a huge like schedule for China. It was just like I had blocked off a month for China. <laughs> So I spent the first few days just wandering around, talking to people, asking about places they'd been, and, and landed on this really weird bus route that I would take that would carry me across the Tibetan Plateau, um, and then it would involve a bit of hitchhiking. Um, and I landed on that because they told me not to do it, <laughs> like as bad as that sounds. Like some guy was like, you're not capable enough to do this, don't do this. And I was like, okay, I'm gonna, <laughs> now I have to do it. <laughs> yeah, so. I went from that hostel, took a train to Chengdu, China, um, spent some days wandering around eating food, like delicious spicy food, got way too sick of food and also the cities. Because remember, like the past three months, I had spent probably two and a half of them living in a tent or living outside. So the city was a lot. So I needed to get out. So I got on that bus route um, that just took me to like the middle of nowhere, China um, or Tibet. So officially within the board, not, it's officially outside the borders of the Tibetan Autonomous Region, so I didn't need a special visa, but the population is like almost entirely Tibetan, so it was like a loophole, so I could get that Tibet experience, uh, and I spent the next few days just riding those buses, getting off at random towns, trying to find somewhere to stay, uh, hiking, um, had a pretty powerful experience one day being invited to a like a funeral, like a Tibetan funeral from this hostel owner who I'd become pretty close with. Um, and it's actually called a sky burial. And I kind of have mixed feelings talking about this because it sounds like I'm broadcasting it as a tourist when it's not really a tourist attraction at all. This is like somebody's, like somebody's culture, somebody passes away. But um, I was invited to observe this funeral because the more observers, the easier it is uh, for the person to go to heaven. Um, so I was... I got dropped off on this hillside at like 5 a.m., um, super cold, prayer flags everywhere, waiting for the procession to show up. And no one showed up for like two hours. <laughs> I was really concerned <laughs> being on this hillside that was very, very cold with just prayer flags and lots of um, burial tools. Um, I just kind of had a moment of like, what am I doing right now? How did I get here? All my friends are in school. 
like, where am I? And then everyone's, and then this car shows up carrying the deceased person. And I was, I was told beforehand uh, what the sky burial would entail. Um, and it's, it's actually like a, a traditional way of burying a Tibetan Buddhist. Um, and it's on the plateau. It's like 13,000 feet in elevation. So there aren't trees that grow. And it's too cold to bury bodies um, because the soil is frozen. Um, so what's actually done is there's a burning of incense and then a lot of prayers. And then these monks actually um, cut up the corpse like methodically and feed it to vultures because there's a lot of birds on the plateau. So I was invited to observe this, <laughs> and they did that. They did exactly what they told me that they were going to do, and they like there's they started burning incense and singing prayers, and and then they start chopping this corpse with an axe and feeding and like these humongous birds that are slowly gathering in numbers um, that are swarming around the body. There's like hundreds of them, humongous vultures, um, and they're feeding uh, the vultures these uh, like flecks of body and then when they get to the bone they crush the bone and mix it with some curry so it's less or so it's more palatable to the birds so they're not just eating like bone they're eating like bone curry and like within an hour the entire body's gone and it's really peaceful like as ironic as that sounds like it was very like grotesque like it's definitely like there's no hiding anything but it's also like very spiritual and peaceful and the family's not there but the friends are and everyone's celebrating the person's life and it was just really like powerful experience like I kind of get the chills like talking about it because that was that was something that was so foreign to me and to be welcomed into that just because I was friends with the hostel owner and welcomed into the procession and it was stressful to be respectful I was worried that I was going to offend somebody so I did my best to be respectful and I think I think it went fine but um yeah, that that was that experience definitely stands out. Wow, um, I mean that gives me chills. I, I believe I've heard of that before through you know readings at some point. Like I've heard of a sky burial or something along those lines, but to hear the full story and I appreciate you sharing. I totally respect your wish to not make that a tourist attraction or or, or speak of it as such, which you you don't at all. I mean that's a really beautiful experience to be able to and honored to be a part of, I'm sure. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely. That was midway through China. And then, and then where did your adventures take you? And then, <laughs> I know it's, I know it's so dense. This is why it's hard when people ask me what I did in my year off. Like I, that's why I go, my go-to is, oh, I just bummed around. <laughs> yeah. And you don't have to go in depth into, you know, I'm sure that there are hundreds of experiences, you know, such as that one that you can share that were equally as meaningful and in different ways probably and so you don't have to share all of them you're welcome to share highlights or generally where you went or if you even just care to share tips of how you ended up in the places you did if there's you know students who are looking to probably not replicate what you did it sounds really unique obviously but you know something similar (laughs) yeah absolutely um I guess just logistically the big picture of what I did next was finish up traveling through China a lot in between, as you might guess, a lot of camping and hiking. Um, and by the end of China, I was extremely sick uh, physically. So one thing, and I had a plan to go visit my brother in Australia. where, he, So he was surfing on the Gold Coast, living with his girlfriend, um, like living the beautiful like uh, picture, like, you know, uh, postcard life. So I wanted to go visit him. Um, and actually, my advice for people would be to break up your year, portions being alone, doing things that really, really push you, and then portions of the year that you can look forward to as being like, you know, regardless, like, it will be fun. So that was Australia. I headed to Australia, and I had gone, I was, like, 
very skinny, pale, like I've lost all the weight again because I was just so sick. Got to Australia and spent about three weeks there. Two of them were with my brother. One of them was on, no, I spent a month there. Two of them was with my brother. Two of them were on my own. Um, and we just camped um, up and down the coast of Australia on the beaches. Once again, is reminiscent of our time uh, in the West Indies, just in that it was so beautiful, but also challenged us <laughs> the weather. Um, and that was pure type one fun. Um, and got into making videos and met other people who spoke English, which was exciting for a change. Yeah, and Australia definitely has a special place in my heart. Um, I didn't expect it to be so ex like so much fun and meaningful, but like those were some highlights of my like youth that will definitely stay with me. But that was basically just like a break for the grand finale of the grand finale, which was Central Asia. So I skipped going back to Hong Kong because Aus Australia was so much fun. Yeah, I was wondering where your, your, where your plan diverted, as you had mentioned. Yeah, so China was way more challenging than I expected. And one thing that doesn't get talked about in gap or in travel, I guess, is the toll it takes on health. You know, a lot of people um, go around and, you know, eat a lot of street food. One highlight is eating the food of where you go, which, I mean, it is a highlight. Everyone should eat the local cuisine. But also if you're just like wandering around and eating. Um, and a lot of people like to drink and party, um, which is totally fine. I personally like can't digest alcohol, so I don't really... So, but I guess doing that, all that stuff really takes a toll on the health. Um, so I was feeling that and I really needed Australia to like gather my health <laughs> physically. And then, yeah, I canceled Hong Kong to stay in Australia and recover. <laughs> and then got to my last section, which would be through Central Asia. Um, and I remember getting on the plane from Australia that would basically take me through China back to, and then to Uzbekistan, um, thinking, am I really doing this again? Like. <laughs> I'm about to go through what am I about to experience in the next like month and a half. Um, I was pretty sad to leave my brother and leave somewhere so special, but once again, it was familiar, you know, being sad at a departure, but excited for what's to come. And I ended up in Uzbekistan. Yeah, it's one of the le least traveled countries on earth. Um, you have to get special visas to go there. And the only reason I ended up going to Central Asia is because there's a Moorhead Kane alum who... Um, advised me to do it, and she's super cool. Her name's Noam Arkoff. She made a film on Kyrgyzstan. Um, she's got all sorts of media that she's produced from Central Asia and just couldn't recommend it enough. Um, so because of her, I ended up going there. I was going to ask, because those are definitely off the beaten path, but amazing that you had someone guiding you on that to yeah travel somewhere so unique. Yeah, she encouraged me to do it, um, and there isn't a lot of information online about traveling in Central Asia, and it's pretty spotty because the region is so volatile. Like things change so quickly, but I did enough research and, you know, the fear of going to the stands like Afghanistan, Pakistan is not, you know, applicable to all of the other countries in Central Asia. And actually, as I'd learned, um, Central Asia on a whole gets a really unfair, bad rap. The people are incredibly nice. Like the hospitality that I experienced in Uzbekistan and Kyrgyzstan and Kazakhstan was unmatched the entire year. It is especially in Uzbekistan, where the fewest people go. Um, I, can, I couldn't tell you the number of times that I would meet a stranger. They'd want to know where I'm from. We'd have a conversation, and they'd invite me to their house for a meal, like legitimately, in a not weird way. Like, it just opened up their doors like they'd want me. They wouldn't let me pay for dinner. They would have, they'd take me to dinner. Like, and this is experienced by all the other travelers. There's a couple people I met who are biking the Silk Road, and they had the same things to say. And, yeah, and Uzbekistan was... I went there partially because I had so few people go there, and there's a lot of 
historically significant cities that I didn't know the history of, but I thought would be cool to see. And I thought it'd be fun to challenge myself to somewhere that like no English speaking, so foreign, very like no Americans. Uh, and it ended up being just that. It was like a real challenge, but it was really, really fun. It was the hidden gem of the year was Uzbekistan. Um, and then the city, I'd encourage you to go look up some photos from just Google Uzbekistan and look at the cities. There are some cities that haven't changed for thousands of years in their architecture. Um, and then there's like ancient traditional like food recipes that have like Mediterranean spices with Indian cooking styles and Asian noodles because it's on this ethnic blend like it's on the Silk Road so it gets all those cultures and in one part of you know Central Asia you'll get you'll see people who are darker more Persian looking and then you move 50 miles you know south and you'll see people more Mongol looking and 50 miles north and you get people with blue eyes and then everywhere in between you get people like who look you know more Mongol but have crazy blue eyes and blonde hair like it's really impressive like the diversity yeah and the wealth of culture so that was that was really cool. So how long were you in Central Asia for? Uh, I was in Central Asia for about a month and a half. And I spent, it was like two weeks or three weeks in Uzbekistan. And then I flew to Kyrgyzstan. And in hindsight, I wish I did all this travel overland. But everything, all the warnings online were about overland travel. But you don't really know until you get somewhere how safe it is. So that's another piece of advice. Everything online is like, it's like WebMD, you know, like I have a cough and I have a fever, like, oh, you must have cancer. It's like, no, it's yeah. like, can I travel overland from A to B? People will be like, no. <laughs> yeah. um, but I ended up flying to Kyrgyzstan and met a friend from the alum who advised me on all this travel. I met her friend there and spent a few weeks on my own traveling around the country and mountain biking and camping on my own. And there was just beautiful mountain range called the Tian Shan mountain range that borders China and Kyrgyzstan. It's incredible green foothills with cattle and yak and all these livestock that are being herded around by nomadic people. And then the foothills, the hills generally get bigger and bigger and they're all grassy and covered in wildflowers until you get some massive snow covered peak. And there's mountain or not mountain lions, there's snow leopards and like mountain goats. And you can see the tracks of these animals back in the back country. And I spent like a lot of time camping just on my own, reflecting, reading, writing, meeting people, eating food. I spent about like $4 to $7 a day, including housing. <laughs> Extremely affordable, very easy to get around, incredibly hospitable people. Like I was going around on my own with a big backpack looking homeless and families who live in yurts in the back, I guess not back country, like that's like, well, just rural areas would be living in a yurt with their livestock and then they'd open the <laughs> flap to the yurt and yell and flag me down. I'd show up and, and they'd give me tea and bread and jam and hope I don't get sick. And then I'd be on my way and then, you know, see another yurt and then go through that process again. And, and my brother and dad um, flew out to Kyrgyzstan as this was the end of the year and we wanted to end the year together just like we'd started it. Um, but this time, Instead of my dad showing us around and knowing the language, I was showing everyone around and I was, you know, my limited broken Russian getting us around. And that was pretty funny for my dad. I think it was really meaningful for him to uh, have that, see that transition in us, you know, becoming independent. And he hadn't seen my brother and I for a while, many months at that point. And he didn't know how close Chris and I had become. So we were 
people mistook us for twins just because we'd have that dynamic, uh, like understanding each other in between the lines. And my dad just couldn't believe how close we'd become, how independent and capable. And he would see us like haggling with the taxi drivers who were trying to rip us off or, you know, rip us off. Like we're just trying to get a fair price, but he would see that and he'd be like, wow, these boys have, they wouldn't even like negotiate in Mexico. And now here they are like negotiating over pennies. Like, look at this change. And it was pretty fun for him to see. And, you know, we backpacked together and father and son's trip through this, the longest glacier valley um, on earth where we were surprised the only visitors of the year and just hiked through this enormous glacier valley. It was just like something out of a fantasy movie with two mile wide valley, glacier valley floor with a river running through it and just rocks and enormous orange and green mountains on either side with stunning sunsets and then 24,000 foot peaks in the distance, you know, animal footprints and the occasional yurt and local. And we were really, really isolated at that point in the year from everything and we we just bonded together and it's kind of hard to put into words what an experience like that does not only to me like the traveler but the group like the relationship I now have with my dad and brother because of that but we had a really remarkable backpacking trip like camping in that glacier valley and ended it off ended the that uh backpacking trip with a time some time in a hot springs with enormous peaks overlooking us. And this is actually one of the regions that everywhere online warned us not to go because China was trying to annex it. They're trying to take it from Kyrgyzstan. So there's like a lot of military presence, but there was like a broken down watchtower. (laughs) There's not military presence. So once again, just feeling it out on the ground to make sure it's safe before we went, but not, you know, listening to everything you read online, not being afraid to take your own risks and pave your own road. Wow. I mean, that I'm sure is many, you know, a familial dream. I would, I think, you know, if I could have an experience like that with one of my parents or a sibling, it would be just incredible. I can't even imagine how that could affect your relationship in such a positive way. So, I mean, and the fact that you also have family and I'm sure that your family has shaped you into being this, as you said, like independent person who's willing to embark upon these adventures but to have family members that are willing to do something like that with you that is so off the beaten path and that many people would be very fearful to do I I would venture to say so yeah hats off to all of you for for your perseverance in that sort of a setting thank you yeah I'm extremely fortunate to have the family I have they're so supportive of this year Um, and my dad just coming on those trips to Kyrgyzstan and then we ended it off in Kazakhstan for a few days just living in a really nice city and eating food again that we didn't cook in the backcountry and living in an in not in a tent in an airbnb and just reflecting on the whole year together that was really fun but yeah hats off to him for going for that and he was saying um not you know he's he's like in his 60s and he's saying yeah i've I've gotten used to living a comfortable life like i was he's saying that he wanted to do this trip to see if he could pack up his life into a backpack and live like he did when he was in his 20s and he did (laughs) wow yeah Yeah. props to him i hope i'm like that when i'm a dad (laughs) right and when you're yeah it's 50 60 to be able to still yeah keep that youthful piece of yourself alive that's amazing oh it's huge and so I'm curious too, with the Buchanan project and the website, the blog, everything, is that mainly you directing that or, you know, is it you and your brother sharing that blog or is it mainly focused on your experiences? I'm curious how that broke up. Yeah, Buchanan project started off as like a solo endeavor and then my brother wanted to join. Um, so after, I guess the West Indies was the first time that he really got on board and was taking photos. Um, so from then on out, it was pretty much shared. We both put in a lot of work the website and it started off obviously with like no content nothing we didn't know what we wanted to do with it we wanted it to basically just be a way that my parents and some friends at home would know we were still alive and it ended up really being an outlet for us to use you know a creative outlet 
um, to explore photography and creative writing and different writing styles and just blogging and um, and it was fun being able to travel uh, with the idea that we were looking for with recording and looking for stories to tell and trying to remember so we'd be journaling every day to remember these adventures and taking photos and really looking at what was around us um, and it ended up we ended up garnering a decent following which we didn't expect um, but we're really grateful for a lot of people at home shared it um, and that was really fun and ended up getting a somewhat of a gear sponsorship out of it uh, for the trip to Patagonia due to the following of the website um, which was another surprise you know when you're running on like a, a tight budget like it's nice to have some gear um, and yeah it ended up just being a brotherly collaboration 50 50 um, I was doing some he, he definitely is better than me at photography he's really got an artistic eye and I think I've got him a little bit beat in the writing so we were you know he was editing some of my photos and I was peer reviewing some of his writing and and towards the end we started making YouTube videos just for fun and sharing those on the blog but that was not our forte but it's still fun <laughs> yeah oh my gosh what I mean it sounds like you guys balanced each other well in that endeavor which is awesome and I definitely I will mention the the website at the end of at the end of the show on our sign off but definitely worth looking through for any listeners out there again like I said I had glanced through it I haven't read all of your posts and such but just the photography is incredible I think you're very very talented photographer and capturing the many adventures that you had and like you mentioned beautiful landscapes in so many of those places thank you so much yeah so I'm curious just overall kind of to wrap things up is there anything that you feel you would do differently if you were to go back and do this year over or yeah things you wish you might have done differently yeah in hindsight everything's 2020 but yeah but I actually wish that I did more overland travel I ended up you know following the budgets quite well and actually coming out ahead of budget a couple of times but traveling overland is not only cheaper um, but it's also way more of an experience like, you know, you can look at the cliche phrase, it's about the journey, not the destination. And if you fly place to place, it's pretty, you know, you're emphasizing the destinations. But if you go overland, take buses, even hitchhiking or taking trains and cars, you really meet some adventurous people along the way. You meet the kindest people willing to help you and the most adventurous travelers also doing the same thing. Um, so the portions of the year I did on the ground, um, I probably met the most interesting group of people. Um, so I'd spend more time doing that. And I probably would have spent more time in Central Asia, actually. Um, there was this French friend I met. Um, She's driving home via the Silk Route in like a 1970s Soviet era Lada, which is a car, like the Soviet Union's version of the Toyota Camry. Um, that she's driving back um, all the way to France on her own. And I wish I had a little more time to do that with her, maybe. <laughs> Obviously, that would have thrown a wrench into the plans, but probably more time in Central Asia um, and been less afraid to do things on my own and just travel light. You really need a lot less than you think, especially if you're traveling to places where everything's in, more inexpensive, like cheaper than in the States. You really should just travel with the bare, bare minimum. Absolutely so. traveling light. You'll always thank yourself for it later. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Wonderful. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for sharing the very unique experience that, that you clearly had during this year. Um, I guess before we sign off, is there anything, any final thoughts or remarks that you'd like to make in regards to this time or anything that we might have overlooked? Oh, um, it flies by. A gap year seems like a long time, and a, it seems like a daunting amount of time, but it will go by so quickly. I just encourage every listener out there to make the most of it because it really does go by. <laughs> um, 
and I'm so grateful that I took the year off. And never once have I questioned that. <laughs> so I'm super happy that you're making this podcast, and it's been real, really an honor to <laughs> speak about it and to people who want to listen <laughs> and learn. So thank you. Awesome. Well, thank you, Andrew. And I think what's really unique about your time was not only that you did it on your own and you also had this really unique family experience, but that you really ventured to some places that are super far off the beaten path. And I think that that is inspirational for any listeners out there to realize that, you know, you, there's so much to be gained from going to taking the road less traveled, you know, to be cliche, but to, you know, go places that most people don't get to experience. And I think the takeaways that you have from that can be so much deeper. So I appreciate you sharing that. Thank you. Well, thank you to everyone out there for taking the time to listen. For some housekeeping, you can find Moorhead Kane online at www.moorheadcane.org or on Facebook and Instagram at Moorhead Kane. And you can find Andrew and the Buchanan Project online at buchananproject.com or on Instagram at Buchanan Project. And you can find us here at Gap Year Radio on Instagram at face- and Facebook at Gap Year Radio or online at Gap Year Radio Podcast.com. You can email us your Gap Year questions or comments at Gap Year Radio at gmail.com. And lastly, you can download our show wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you have a moment, we'd love for you to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts so more people can discover Gap Year Radio. So for you, Andrew, we have been trying to sign off our podcast every time with a different foreign language. It seems like you might have a few under your belt, whether that be Chinese or Russian, but uh, would you care to share with us how to say thank you for listening and goodbye or something along those lines in one of those languages? Uh, Yeah, sure. I've forgotten my Russian at this point, so I'll... (laughs) That's Chinese. Okay, perfect. (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Andrew. We've appreciated having you on the pod today. Thank you. Bye-bye.